Let's pray together that the risen Lord Jesus Christ would be here with us and present amongst us as he has promised. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for all the gifts that you give to us and especially we thank you for the gift of your own Son, dearly beloved, in whom you are well pleased. And Lord Jesus, we praise you for your great faithfulness to the Father. We pray that as you have promised to be with your disciples to the end of the age, so you would be with us now teaching and inspiring and leading and guiding us. And we ask it for your own great name's sake. Amen. A friend of mine recommended a book uh, a while ago to me called Built to Last. Uh, It's about what the authors call the successful habits of visionary companies. One of the principles they identify in visionary companies is what they title BHAGs. That's how to pronounce it. BHAGs. Big, hairy, audacious goals. Let me give you some examples. Boeing. You may know that they make aeroplanes. In mid-century, it made propeller aircraft for the military. At that time, there there was no interest in commercial jet-powered planes, but their engineers had the idea of creating one for the commercial market. Although to build the prototype, one single engine, jet engine to go on a commercial plane, cost one quarter of the entire value of the company. That's not, that's not a bad effort to make a prototype just to see if the jolly thing would work. They went ahead, they set themselves the BHAG of being the major player in the commercial airplane industry. They built the mighty 707 and brought the commercial airplane market into the jet age. Incredible move by Boeing. Or Henry Ford, who at the turn of the century set himself the BHAG of, quote, democratising the automobile to build a motor car for the great multitude so low in price that no man making a good salary will be unable to own one and enjoy with his family the blessing of hours of pleasure in God's great open spaces. I think in those days they still had them. He says, the horse will have disappeared from our highways. Uh, That was a radical thought in those days. And the automobile will be taken for granted. What's interesting about that is that at at the time, Ford was one of more than 30 companies in the market with about 15% of the market share. But with that big, hairy, audacious goal driving them, they became the top company in the market. Now, you know... I think this is all pretty fun. If you're that sort of person, you're into big, hairy, audacious goals, then it's a great idea. You can see how it rallies the troops and gets your blood racing. We've been looking at Jesus in the last week of his life, this longest week, and we're at the final moment of his earthly ministry and he delivers to his disciples the biggest hag of them all. You see there in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16. Now the 11 disciples, all 11 of them, that's 10 plus 1, 11, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, that's 11 of them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. (coughs) That all nations are to be made 
the disciples of Jesus, baptized into the name of God, which now includes the name of Jesus, and taught to obey him. Spoken to 11 disciples. That is a big, hairy, audacious goal. I want you to see three crucial things here then as we work our way through Matthew chapter 28. The first is to notice uh, that the catalyst for this big, hairy, audacious goal is the transformed bodily resurrection of Jesus. And we need to take some time to see exactly what it is that's being testified to here. Secondly, the basis of this great commission is that in rising from the dead, Jesus has staged the greatest comeback in the history of competitive contests. That when all looked dead and buried, he's in fact become exactly what he said he was, the Messiah and Lord. We'll unpack that as well. And third, what I want you to see this afternoon is that this leads organically, necessarily, without compromise, to the mission which he sets his disciples. The mission which is the implementation of the fact that Jesus is Lord and Christ. We'll look at each of those three points in turn. Firstly then, the catalyst. Jesus has been raised. Now I don't know how you felt last Tuesday, if you're here with us, or at one of the other public meetings. Uh, the events of Friday, of course, leave us gutted. Jesus of Nazareth is dead. After months, if not years, of plotting, his enemies have finally gotten him. Uh, at one level it's not unexpected he'd said that this would happen several times but it is still shocking after all he'd claimed the most outrageous things that God was on his side and that God would rescue him and now that claim lay in tatters he was dead and buried and his enemies are rubbing their hands and if the gospel ended there we wouldn't be here the EU wouldn't be here the Bibles in front of you wouldn't be here, at least not the last 250 pages. You would have no Christmas holiday coming up because Jesus would have proved to be a sham, a fake, a fraud. And you would never have heard the first thing about him. He would have faded along with his namesake, uh, uh, Jesus the Galilean, who uh, frankly you've never, you, you don't even know of. Which is of course how the disciples felt. As events drew on after that Friday and the tension cranked up and reached breaking point, you can imagine the disciples understandably would have given up, utterly dispirited, defeated, broken, just as Jesus' body was left broken on the cross. It would seem that his fate had been sealed, just like the tomb with a great rock rolled in front of it was sealed, in which Joseph of Arimathea had carefully and perhaps wistfully laid the body of the one in whom he had hoped. Can you imagine that? Carrying Jesus' limp, useless, dead body and laying him in that tomb. And now the women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, uh, the mother of James, one of Jesus' original disciples, perhaps those who were last to give up hope had finally joined their friends in disappointment. They came to see the tomb. We're told elsewhere that they came to embalm the body, most likely for a subsequent burial. But Jesus had yet one more surprise for them. Verse 2 of Matthew chapter 28. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him the guards shook and became like dead men. At the beginning of Jesus' life an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and issued instructions. Now at the beginning of Jesus' resurrection life an angel appears again looking like lightning with clothes as white as snow as was the transfigured Jesus. Along with this appearance is an earthquake, one of those standard cues for the presence and power of God. And the stone is rolled away and in a wonderfully ironic reversal the very alive guards that had been posted there shook and became like dead men, perhaps fainting, as the angel announces that the very dead Jesus has become alive. Verses 5 to 7 and again issues instructions. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I, I think that's a little optimistic myself. Uh, but there you go. Angels perhaps are optimists. Do not be afraid. Oh, okay. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has been raised as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He's been raised from the dead and indeed he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. The angel states a fact. He's not here. He interprets that fact. He has been raised. And he applies it. This was just as he said, thus demonstrating that Jesus was in fact the true prophet. He offers supporting evidence for it, invites them to come and inspect the place where Jesus had lain. And then he commands them to rejoin the program. In other words, what the angel is saying to these women is, everything is proceeding according to plan. Uh, earlier in chapter 26 verse 31 to 32 immediately prior to Peter's declaration of loyalty Jesus had told the disciples that they would desert him but to regroup in Galilee up in the north where Jesus would be waiting for them having been raised up and the angel now repeats that instruction for Jesus has as he said been raised up. Now Matthew highlights the fact that we are dealing with a real resurrection here, that the tomb really is empty it is the same Jesus and yet at the same time it's a different Jesus the women worship him he's more than the Jesus they had known, verse 8 so they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples suddenly Jesus met them and said greetings that's, that's perhaps a little too formal in our translation uh, probably just means hello uh, you, you, again you just tried to imagine yourself as Joseph taking the body imagine yourself as one of those women now wandering off to the tell, tell the disciples and Jesus stands in front and says g'day <laughs> I don't think you'd be saying much and they came to him took hold of his feet and worshipped him and then Jesus said to them do not be afraid equally optimistic go and tell my brothers what a beautiful term of grace these utterly dispirited and utterly faithless disciples go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee there they will see me they worship him and yet this is still the same Jesus they knew genuinely raised in a scene that smacks of slapstick, the guards eventually come to realise, sorry, eventually, eventually come to and realise that they are in big trouble. They fess up to the chief priests, who rather than coming down on them like a ton of bricks, 
in their desperation do everything to cover up the truth. Read verses 11 to 15. While they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers. Hush money. Telling them, you must say, his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. I understand that being asleep while you're on guard was a capital offence for Roman soldiers. It's a fairly feeble plan. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him, they promise, and keep you out of trouble. You wonder how thick those soldiers were. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. Of course, the irony here is delicious. Uh, Earlier, at the end of chapter 27, the very reason the guards are posted is so that they can prevent the disciples from stealing the body away and claiming that Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, when exactly that has happened, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, the story they make up is the very same story that they'd sought to prevent. And their incompetence in the face of the power of God is just comic in its absurdity. It's very important that you understand the claim that's being made here in Matthew's Gospel. When Jesus spoke of him being raised from the dead, he spoke of his resurrection as no ordinary resurrection, if there's such a thing. Let me give you a couple of diagrams here. This is death in here. Okay, an ordinary resurrection would be resuscitation, such that happened to Lazarus or the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7. They came back, they went into death, and they came back resuscitated. That's not what's happened to Jesus. Nor, secondly, was it a resurrection as some disturbers of the faith have put it, a kind of ghost or spiritual resurrection as though Jesus, the human, stayed dead but his memory and power rose in the disciples' heart. This is the ghost view. Jesus really stays dead but rises in the disciples' heart. Uh, The early believers knew about that kind of vision, a vision of someone who was appearing to them from the dead. There's a a classic scene in Acts chapter 12 where Peter is delivered from prison and he goes to the house where his friends are praying. Uh, He knocks at the door, a servant girl answers and stunned to see Peter because they're just praying for him, uh, she goes to the disciples and tells them, look, Peter's here. They don't believe her that it's really him They say to her, you're out of their mind. She insists that it's so, but they say it's just his angel. They think that she's just having a vision of someone who's already been executed. John Spong, uh, who I heard on Triple J last Tuesday, uh, why it is that Triple J should love this guy, frankly, as a fool, uh, understands Jesus' resurrection in this way. As something that happened not to Jesus but as something that happened to the disciples. He says this, Simon saw the meaning of the crucifixion that morning as he had never seen it before. And Simon felt himself to be embraced even with his doubts, his fears, his denials, 
in a way that he had never before been embraced. That was the dawn of Easter in human history. It would be fair to say that at that moment Simon felt resurrected. He's talking about Jesus. But you see the slippage, he starts talking about Simon. This is in uh, John's version of the resurrection. The clouds of his grief, Spong continues, confusion and depression vanished from his mind and at that moment he knew Jesus was a part of the very essence of God. And at that moment, Simon saw Jesus alive. This is simply not linguistically possible. Uh, N.T. Wright, uh, perhaps the foremost evangelical defender of the historicity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, uh, shows why it's not tenable. He writes, Resurrection simply meant embodiment. Resurrection was not a term for life after death in general. It always meant re-embodiment. Whether you believed in it, as the Pharisees did, or whether you disbelieved it, as the Sadducees did, and the Greeks all agreed that the word resurrection meant re-embodiment. However strong, Wright goes on, the disciples' sense may have been that Jesus had been vindicated, that they'd been forgiven or whatever, they still would not have said he was raised from the dead. Something remarkable happened to the body of Jesus. You see that reflected here. They touch his feet. Uh, in Luke's Gospel, he eats with them. He's no ghost or spirit. He's certainly not a visitor from the world of the dead, perhaps himself safe in the hands of God. That is just a nonsense which will not cope with the facts as they are presented to us. Well, thirdly, some say... Some say that Jesus was raised but with an entirely discontinuous body that has no relation to his earthly body so that the tomb is still full of the bones of Jesus. This is interestingly the position of the primate of Australia, um, the head of the uh, Anglican Church. Why do they call him a primate? I'm not entirely sure. (laughs) But it may be more appropriate than... No, anyway, I won't go there. Uh, Dr. Peter Carnley, who, despite all the misrepresentation of him that has gone on, does believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but he does it according to the third diagram here. Now, of course, this is better than the first two, either a resuscitation view or the kind of spiritual ghostly view, but it is still seriously wrong. With the serious theological implication is that Uh, that God has ditched his creation that is the body of Jesus which he took to himself he took flesh to himself in the person of his son but now God has ditched it and that Satan really has won here that Satan has succeeded in driving an immovable wedge of sin between God and his creation and has really won and achieved his goal yes there is a discontinuity It is the resurrection body that Jesus has been raised in, but the truth is rather like this. The body which goes in is the body which comes out. But there is a continuity as well as a discontinuity. It is the same person, the same individual, such that the tomb really was empty. That's crucial. Really was empty. 
and his body was not discarded but rather transformed, redeemed if you like, just as the world, all of creation and especially Christians will be also transformed and redeemed. In other words, Wright puts it, Jesus' resurrection is what you could call transphysical, a transformed physicality. The point is that this provides the catalyst, the starting point for a never-ending story. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then you see we have nothing to say. We have nothing to offer. He was just another failed Messiah, another talking head, who in the end came to an end. But if he was raised from the dead, or rather because he was raised from the dead, we have to say... It's an all or nothing kind of thing here. If he's still in the grave, then the whole thing is a complete joke. Because he's raised from the dead, then nothing less than the most important thing in all of human history and experience has taken place in Jesus. Now, I find it incredible that it's perfectly possible to be fully aware of the resurrection as those soldiers were and to completely miss its meaning. Uh, The Sydney Morning Herald wrote recently, uh, that 43% of people still believe the resurrection occurred as an historical event. Well, so what? So did the soldiers, for obvious reasons. In fact, it was never really an issue for those there. It was all too obvious. I remember one night uh, arguing in a pub Uh, with a friend for hours about the resurrection as the night wore on and I kept buying him more drinks being the generous guy that I am and his brain got fuzzier he got strangely more and more convinced of my point of view (laughs) until he finally said okay Jesus rose from the dead so what I was gobsmacked I I couldn't believe it he'd given the most important point he'd given the point And yet he could still say, so what? Like many of that 43%, I suspect. Bare belief in the event 2,000 years ago is at one level irrelevant. See, the issue is not so much about whether you believe in the resurrection, but what you do with it, how you understand its meaning. And to understand what to do with it, we need to understand the context in which it occurred. Now, you you know that Jesus spent his life proclaiming the kingdom of God. And it turns out that the resurrection was one crucial way of speaking about that kingdom. Remember, of course, that what people expected from the kingdom was very different from what Jesus was offering. The Jewish hope for the kingdom was that God would act in a new way and that everything would be put to rights. Freedom, justice, peace, judgment on evildoers inside Israel and particularly on paganism outside Israel all this would follow when God at last unveiled his plan when his promises would be fulfilled when Israel would be rescued when the new exodus would take place when the exile both the literal and the metaphorical exile would be over at last and God would be king of his world now in some versions of that story we read in the Old Testament the Gentiles would then flock back into Zion hear the word of the Lord and share in that blessing. In other versions, the Gentiles would finally be condemned, punished 
and either obliterated altogether or ruled over by Israel. But the point was that because Israel's God was the creator, the Lord of the whole world, and because he was God of justice who would not allow evil to triumph and proceed unhindered, he would act, he must act, both to vindicate his own name and to rescue the people to whom he was committed. He would establish his kingdom. And one of the metaphors that was used for that kingdom, for that new life, was resurrection. Think about it. Genesis 3. God said, break this commandment and you'll die. What happened was that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. Deuteronomy chapter 29. God said, break these commandments and you'll die. But what death looked like was expulsion from the land of Israel. Exile then is a sort of death and therefore return from exile will be a sort of resurrection. And you see that particularly in Ezekiel's great vision of chapter 37, the dry bones, the valley of the dry bones. It's a metaphor, not for a whole bunch of people being raised from the dead as such, but in the context for the return of Israel from exile, the establishment of God's kingdom and rule over his uh, justified and vindicated people. They had come back, but the Romans were still here. And so exile, uh, return from exile, still awaited Israel. So Jesus comes in and proclaims the kingdom of God. What's he saying? He's saying Ezekiel 37 is about to happen. But it was also a literal hope for the end of the age. It was a metaphorical hope for the nation of Israel, but it was a literal hope for the end of the age as well, that God would not abandon his faithful people who died in his service, but raise them up from the dead in his kingdom. This is crystallised in a fantastic story in a a book known as 2 Maccabees, uh, chapter 7. It's not in the Bible, but it's uh, in what's called the Apocrypha. It's not probably even history, actually, but it's an absolutely ripping yarn. I'm going to read to to you a section from it in a moment. It's kind of the Jewish equivalent of Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it shows the hope of the times. 100 years before Jesus, and their hope was for a literal Resurrection, when God defeats the enemies who currently rule and vindicates his people. Listen to this. It happened also that seven brothers and their mother were arrested and were being compelled by the king under torture with whips and thongs to partake of unlawful swine's flesh. Swine means pig. Uh, pigs are bad. Um, I mean, not literally. Um, but according to the law, don't eat pork. Have no pork on your fork. <laughs> and they were being compelled to, to betray God. It's just, I mean, you think, well, if we're going to say it's just some food. No, it's not food. It's obedience and loyalty and love to God. One of them, acting as their spokesman, said, What do you intend to ask and learn from us? For we are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our ancestors. The king fell into a rage and gave orders to have pans and cauldrons heated. These were heated immediately, and he commanded that the tongue of their spokesman be cut out and that they scalp him and cut off his hands and feet while the rest of the brothers and the mother looked on. When he was utterly helpless, the king ordered them to take him to the fire, still breathing, and to fry him in a pan. The smoke from the pan spread widely, but the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die nobly, saying, The Lord God is watching over us. 
and in truth has compassion on us as Moses declared in his song that bore witness against the people to their faces when he said and he will have compassion on his servants. After the first brother had died in this way they brought forward the second for their sport. They tore off the skin of his head with the hair and asked him will you eat rather than have your body punished limb by limb? He replied in the language of his ancestors and said to them no. Therefore he in turn underwent tortures as the first brother had. When he was at his last breath he said, You accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. After him the third was the victim of their sport. When it was demanded he quickly put out his tongue. Take it, you scum. I mean, you can imagine he quickly put out his tongue and courageously stretched forth his hands and said nobly I got these from heaven and because of his laws I disdain them and from him I hope to get them back as a result the king himself and those with him were astonished at the young man's spirit for he regarded his sufferings as nothing and so it goes on all seven brothers die increasingly gruesome manner the youngest one says mum don't worry I'll see you in the resurrection and off he goes like jumps into the pan or something like that Uh, and then finally the mother is killed as well seven brothers and the point is that this kingdom hope this kingdom hope metaphorically the end of exile for Israel and literally the resurrection of the dead for God's faithful people this kingdom hope is what is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus what God was expected to do for his people at the end of history he has done for his son in the middle of history and so when Jesus meets his disciples at the mountain in Galilee in almost a verbatim use of Daniel 7 that classic expression of this Old Testament kingdom hope one of the very few places in the Old Testament where the kingdom language is used explicitly what does Jesus say to them? all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Notice what he does not say. I've been raised so you don't need to be afraid of death. That's true. But it's secondary. That's not really what the resurrection is all about. The main point is rather I'm raised and that means I'm the son of man, God's king the one with all authority I'm the Lord of heaven and earth that's what the resurrection is about the kingdom of God is present in me the love and justice and blessing and hope of God are found in me this resurrection is the great achievement of God which of course is why it needs to be implemented And so the disciples, as disciples, interestingly, not called apostles here, as disciples, as ordinary followers of Jesus, are not just to be disciples, but rather to be disciple-making disciples. Do you see the difference there? They're not just to be disciples, those who believe in Jesus, because who Jesus is, is the Lord of heaven and earth, with all authority given to him, the kingdom of God fulfilled in his person, and therefore disciples cannot but be disciple making disciples 
precisely because all authority is given to Jesus. Therefore, all nations should, all nations must be his disciples. That phone is saying charge, you see. That was providential. Now, originally, of course, that was written to those disciples as the witnesses, those who saw and touched and ate with Jesus, who could testify in a legal testimony to his resurrection and therefore to the truth of his promises, that in him was found the forgiveness of sins in his blood. But you hear Jesus speaking to you also if you're a disciple of his. You too have no option but to be involved in this mission. It is the mission of the church. It's not because we have an interesting spiritual experience which we'd like to share with some other people so they too can have an interesting spiritual experience. It is because it is a fact. By resurrection it is a fact that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And therefore the purpose of disciples is to make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That is our task as Jesus' disciples. We have different parts to play but we must have the same commitment with the same sacrifice. Now I think there are two ways that you can get this instruction, this final great last commission of Jesus wrong. On the one hand you can say, well it's all up to me. You get so focused on what you do that you forget that there are any other players, either God or other people. You become a one woman or a one man mission team. My thing, my project, my involvement, my conversations are the only things that count or deserve support. That's a mistake. Alternatively, you can say, it's not at all up to me, it's other people's job. I don't have the ability, I don't have the opportunity, I don't have the courage, I don't have the answers. And what Jesus would say to you is that these are all excuses and they're all poor. The fact is that we all have the ability to testify to him. We all have some opportunity or can make some opportunity. We all have a Bible and now we all have Christian books and a brain to find out the answers. Now it's not all up to me nor is it all up to someone else. You and I, each of us, have our part to play as witnesses to Jesus. But let's get a little bit practical then. Jesus commands us here today, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and commanding them, uh, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. How's that going to work out in practice? In one sense, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you get into the game. What matters is that you do and you do it with all your heart. There's the bread and butter of ordinary Christian relations, sharing your life and sharing Christ with the people around you, friends and family and colleagues, simply opening up, living your life, being Christian in front of people and talking about it, reaching out, inviting people to stuff. So, for example, with our oldest two kids having started school, we have a whole new community of people, of parents, opened up to us. And uh, my wife, Katrina, and I have made friends with some of those people. And from time to time, uh, she particularly, who has uh, uh, sees them more, talks about Christ and looks to establish stronger relationships with them. It's not 
but she's on a crusade. It's just being a Christian with a big open heart. It seems to me that the key to this is threefold. Readiness, prayerfulness and naturalness. If you're ready to take opportunities to speak about Christ, if you're praying that God would give you opportunities to speak about Christ, and if in your relationships you speak about Christ in a way that's natural, as though being a Christian was an everyday part of your life, which I take it it is, then frankly I think you will not be able to help the way. You will play your part in fulfilling this great commission. You will simply find yourself doing it, making disciples of all nations. But there are so many things that you can do deliberately as well, if you like the icing on the cake. The key is not to be straightjacketed in your imagination as to how to make your contribution. Ordinary people do all sorts of extraordinary creative things. You could choose to spend your holidays on a short-term mission, say, to Africa, or financially supporting someone who's going on a short-term mission. I know a lecturer here at uni who's brought brought out at his own expense young Christians from Mongolia to study in Sydney with a view to training them in Christian leadership, Bible knowledge and ministry to send them back to Mongolia where a massive explosion of the gospel is happening now. A friend of mine has become involved in the Kairos ministry. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. An unbelievably effective outreach to prison inmates bringing the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins to a place which surely needs to hear about that. You can be a teacher going to a state school to support or start up a school Christian group. Or you can be a teacher going to a church or Christian school to make sure that they are Christian more than in name only. There are so many things that you can choose to add on to the ordinary business of your relating. But it's more than just as individuals as well, isn't it? We as an EU have this task. In my view, one of the most significant things you can do is to bring people to the public meeting. You've got two more days left to do it this year. Start up again in in March next year. There is your church, of course. Most people take a long time to become Christians. And most people join a Christian community before they join Christ. They want to see it lived out in front of them before they take hold of it themselves. And so one of the most significant ways that you can make disciples of other people is not so much proclaiming yourself but to bring them into the context where they hear others proclaiming both at formal things like our public meetings but also in the context of just the ordinary uh, relations of a Christian community. Notice though that this is not simply a task which we are left to get on with ourselves. The final words of Jesus are a magnificent promise. Verse 20. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. What Jesus speaks about here, uh, which is uh, recorded in the Acts of the Gospel, uh, sorry, the Acts of the Apostles, is that he pours out the gift of his Holy Spirit with great power upon the disciples. It is a rollicking good ride. And they speak of the Lord Jesus Christ with great boldness. They pray for God to act. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they speak the word of God with boldness. 
Let me say that doesn't mean that they speak the word of God with great annoyingness. Uh, sometimes it did when it was right, but we're in a very different situation, I think. We need patience and gentleness rather than an argumentative spirit. Uh, I met a guy from Texas once. Uh, he was at a, a, a training conference and he did a seminar that I was leading on evangelism, leading people to Christ. Uh, he said that in Texas they don't have non-Christians. Uh, he hadn't met one. Uh, then he stretched back and went, yes, I did meet one once. Uh, I met him in a supermarket and I told him that if he didn't receive Jesus, then he would go to hell. So I guess he now understands the gospel. <laughs> now there's so much wrong with that that it's hard to know where to begin. Um, Frankly, I don't know how many people in Texas are Christians, but there you go. Telling someone they're going to hell is not quite telling them the gospel. But of course, it is relationally somewhat less than perfect, isn't it? We need patience and care. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus is with us. Uh, It's important that you get hold of this. There are some great missionary heroes. Uh, I don't know if uh, you've read of the great missionary heroes. It's important that you read biographies. I read a little while ago about the mighty missionary monks of the Middle Ages uh, with all sorts of uh, weird names. Uh, Incredible heroes who went among the barbarian tribes and saw the conversion of thousands of those violent people. But there are two things to say about great missionary heroes. Firstly, they're usually no different from you and me. Flawed, bad-tempered, they get bad breath and so on and so on they're not kind of saints who walk above the, uh, the you know walk on water but more importantly you have the same power at work in you as they had at work in them the same Jesus is with you who was with them really in terms of power there's no difference between you and them as well as starting right here and right now in your own relationships in your own context I want to challenge you especially as most of us have our lives ahead of us to make big choices and take seriously the possibility of being full time proclaimers of the uh, gospel to make this BHAG that Jesus gives us your life's work here in Sydney or in Australia or overseas You may never have thought of yourself in such a role. The power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus with us, works through people's uh, gifts, but more importantly than that, he works through people's character. The issue is really not how gifted you are, it's how willing you are. I want to tell you a story to conclude. Uh, It's one of those bad stories uh, about angels in heaven. uh, It goes like this. Uh, Jesus, after his uh, resurrection, hangs around for 40 days and he ascends to heaven and uh, the angels are all lined up in a big victory parade when he gets there. He, they, they roll it out. Uh, they're just screaming out at him, way to go. They're American angels, of course. Uh, they're giving him high fives all around. Great job. Fantastic. You got them then. They say, right, what do we do? Give us our job. Tell us. Send us out. And Jesus kind of looks at them and says... Um, Sorry, I've got nothing for you to do. Angels, they're, they're big, powerful things, right, angels? Angels say, what do you mean you've got nothing for us to do? I mean, we won, we're there, it's just kind of let's go do it. 
And Jesus says, uh, no, no, I've already, I've already got a plan. Okay, okay, tell us the plan, I say. So see those 11 guys down there? Yeah, that's the plan. Good plan, huh? And the angels go, what plan B? <laughs> and Jesus says to them, there is no plan B. There is no plan B. The angels don't do this job. It's the disciples of Jesus who do this job, who implement the fact that Jesus has been raised bodily from the dead, that he therefore is the Lord of heaven and earth with all authority given to him. He is with us. We don't do it on our own. But there is no plan B. Will you this summer and next year and for the rest of your life live the kingdom of God which is the kingdom of his son Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth and therefore make disciples of anyone that you can lay your hands on let's pray Lord Jesus Christ reigning ascended glorious we pray that you would so strengthen us as your faithful people that you would make hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of disciples through us. And we ask it for your own glory. Amen.